Thanks, Kev. It's great to have you back. It's great to see Miranda back from France. Yes. And it's great to see all these people here who weren't here about a few minutes ago. That's awesome. I'm, I promise. I'm just going to just needle at that a little bit. But um, yes, yeah, so we are going to be in Nehemiah chapter 5. And we are in verses 14 to 19. Nehemiah 5, 14 to 19. And so where we're at in this journey through Nehemiah, this is about 445 B.C., And so this is really right at the end, the tail end of the Old Testament canon, the history of Israel. And Nehemiah was called by God to rebuild, not the temple. The temple had already been rebuilt about 75, 80 years prior by Zerubbabel during the first uh, return. But then the work had stopped and, you know, Israel sort of uh, was just doing their own thing in, in Jerusalem. There was all sorts of different uh, countries that were there doing business, specifically those of the north from Samaria. That was just really a mess. And then Nehemiah was, uh, was called by God to go and to be the one to, to sort of pave the way for God's promises to come to pass. And that is for God to bring back his people to the nation as he promised and to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Okay, and so Nehemiah's heart and God's purposes were aligned perfectly. And last week through this journey, we we were talking about, you know, Nehemiah had some real ups and downs. And two weeks ago, he was opposed by his enemies. They were mocking him. They were plotting to kill him. And as we saw, God confused their plans. And that whole plot was was done with. Now, last week, Nehemiah has even harder and more difficult problems, not from without, but from within. The people there, the work stopped because the heart of the people was wrong. And we talked about last week that a lot of times what happens is, is we think that God really needs us to do his work. No, God wants us to do his work. God blesses us by giving us his work, giving us a heart for his calling, but he doesn't need us. In other words, right now, if I were to drop dead right here, the work of the kingdom of God is not going to stop at Faith Evangelical Church. Okay, but sometimes we think that, oh, you know, this is it. And, you know, I got to do this. This is my calling. But God cares more about the heart than he does about the work. I should say this. He cares first about your heart. Then he cares about the work that you're doing. And so yesterday, he, or, or last week, he stopped this work because the people were charging the poor that were also Jewish, Jewish leaders that sort of came in during this gap of time, started charging interest towards the poor and taxing them and, and you know, lending them food and, and then even going so far as to taking their children into slavery and taking their daughters into bondage. It got so bad in Nehemiah must have just been shaking his head because he's like, I just got through all this drama with the enemies and now I have to stop the work and and we have to deal with what's going on in the heart of the people. And according to God's word, we looked at Nehemiah dealt with it and he made them repent and stop doing what they were doing, stop charging usury and making it hard and putting burdens on the people. And so why I wanted to give you that introduction is because the first half of chapter five was about that. 
And now what we're going to cover today is the second half of chapter 5, which is sort of a contrast of what Nehemiah was dealing with last week. So he was dealing with the heart of the people and how they were very selfish and how they were very, you know, looking for money and their heart was what? Sinful. We said their heart was unrepentant. We said that their heart was halfway. It wasn't fully in the game. And now we're going to compare that to Nehemiah's heart. And so we're right in chapter 5, verse 14. And this is one of those unique passages and chunks of scripture that's sort of taken out of the timeline here. So this is, was actually written after Nehemiah's. This was probably taken from Nehemiah's journals uh, by Ezra, who we believe was the writer of this book. And, and it was put in there. So this was probably written by Nehemiah years afterwards, just as an account of what happened. So he says in verse 14, now we'll get to the text. Nehemiah 5.14, moreover, from the day that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, for 12 years, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. So now he's, he's contrasting here of what they were doing. They weren't just taking the governor's food allowance. They were overtaxing people for food. Verse 15, But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. Verse 16, I also applied myself to the work on this wall. We didn't buy any land and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, There were at my table 150 Jews and officials besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now that which was prepared for each day was one ox, six choice sheep, also birds were prepared for me, and once in 10 days all sorts of wine were furnished in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the governor's food allowance because the servitude was heavy on this people. Remember me, O God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. I want to say a comment about that, because we see Nehemiah a lot saying, remember me, O God, for my good. Remember me, my God, for my good. So two comments for that, because I know I could probably, I don't have a hard time at first glance at this, going into my prayer time and saying, remember me, Lord, for for all the good that I'm doing. You know, I would be scared to say that. Right. Because he'd be like, and, you know, Uh, so, yeah. So he first of all, this that type of phraseology is found in all sorts of memoirs and all sorts of even from some of the pagan kings uh, calling on to their gods. You know, remember me for my good. It was sort of like a figure of speech that wasn't as prideful as it sounds. That's number one. And number two, I think for to give Nehemiah the benefit of the doubt. You know, I don't know if it's so bad to say that to the Lord in your private prayers when you're when you're really focusing on the will of God. And that's like when Jesus says, you know, anything you pray for in my name, you will get, you will receive. And so we could be the same way. Like you said, Jesus, I want this in your name and please give it to me. That would be pretty bold, too. But we know everything has got to be aligned with the will of God. So I don't think it's as prideful as we think it is, and especially because of the character uh, that Nehemiah shows through this book. And also because 
he knew what was first place in his life. And that's what I want to talk about today. Today is going to be about putting God first. Now, what does it mean to put, first of all, something first in your life? Well, you'll be thinking about that first thing very often. It will, it will consume your thoughts. If, if not a constant thought about that one thing, that's, if you're thinking about something all the time, that's probably first place in your life. <clears throat> if you make sacrifices for that first thing, you know, you, you, you spend money on that. You spend time on that. You are, uh, you're consuming your resources, whatever they may be. You're sacrificing. You're, 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 you're taking things that you could do with other. You could take these resources and you could do, it, do this, but instead you're putting it towards that first thing. You also give up things that conflict with that first thing. If anything gets in the way of your first thing, you get a little mad. You get a little shaken up. Maybe not mad or shaken up, but it gives you anxiety. Man, am I going to be able to get to my first thing? All other things in your life, when you have a first thing, guess what? They're not first. They're second. They're third. They come after. A challenging thing for you to do as a side note would be to ask the one that knows you the most, hey, what is the first thing that I put in my life as number one? Now, whatever it may be, this is something you would not let go of easily. If it was threatened to be taken away, you may even lay down your life for that first thing to get it back. The saying goes, find something you love and live for it. But I prefer better for this example here is to say, find something you would die for and then live to and live for it. Being willing to lay down your life for something would certainly be putting that thing first. And this was Jesus's mentality. Jesus put the father's will first in his life, even though he was God. He put the father's will first because in authority, even though they're completely equal in substance and value and positioning and all that stuff. Well, really in positioning, the father is the first in authority and Jesus submits unto him. And the father says, yes, I'm the first, but I give all things to you. And, and then the Holy Spirit as well is the one that makes it work. They all work in perfect unity. <clears throat> now, Jesus came to die for his people. He came to live for us so that he could then die for us. And he lived faithfully to this mission. And that's the real key is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. He was faithful to lay down his life. It wasn't this some powerful God button that he pushed that allowed him to do it. This was his first priority. What are you putting first in your life after that little overview? What are you living for and putting first this very moment in your life? See, in the book of Nehemiah, we see this really good example of what it means to put not just anything first, but to put God first in your life. Nehemiah is chock full of examples of this. Now, we can't go into Nehemiah's heart. We can't go back and see the type of guy he was and his personality necessarily. We can extract these things. But guess what? The writer of this book 
which we know to be either Ezra or maybe Nehemiah himself, but the real writer behind it is the Holy Spirit. And he's giving us some really good examples, in, especially in this passage, of how God was first place in Nehemiah's life. We see from, the, from previous, he had a heart for God's promises. He had sacrificial obedience. His actions of trusting God were great, but what made them great was that he trusted God even though he didn't know the next step. He followed the Lord's leading without having to know every single step ahead of him. It was enough that God had read, that God had told him to do this. So in this passage, what we hear is we see, what we see is Nehemiah, he's finding himself as governor of Jerusalem. He's got a lot of power. He's got a lot of opportunity, if not all the power and opportunity he really wants because the king of Persia is behind him. He could have easily put himself first rather than enjoying the temporary pleasure of riches. Nehemiah forsook the pursuit of pleasure and put God first. And this is what every person who calls himself or herself a Christian must do. There is no other option. It's a very black and white situation. There's no neutrality. Jesus must be first place on our priority list. And this is not me saying this. This is not someone telling you this saying, oh, you have to live a righteous life like me and Jesus has to be first. And no, these are Jesus's words, as we're going to see. Jesus was the one who said more radical things, I think, than anyone else in the scripture, especially about what it requires to follow God. There's no halfway. You can't leave the New Testament and think that Jesus is maybe okay with serving other gods. It's not happening. <clears throat> but it's so difficult at the same time. I know. It's very difficult, not only to put God first, but it's a struggle also to live a daily life 100% giving us a maintenance of God is first in my life. So I want to look at some of these things here in Nehemiah, especially in this chunk here, and we can see his example so that we can give Jesus the place he deserves in our life. He is God. He did die for us. He deserves to be first and foremost priority. So we'll go through some of the obvious things here. I mean, really, this passage could be preached in many different ways. Primarily, it could be preached at, uh, uh, as a treatise against putting riches first, putting money first. Because this is really a lot with, with the context of the passage is, is that he had a lot of power and he had a lot of opportunity and he didn't take any of that for himself as it relates to resources or money. And he actually took money out of his own pocket to give it to the people and to provide for them every single day. He put God first ahead of the pursuit of worldly pleasure. And this is real easy for us to look back and go, yeah, that, you know, that would, I would do the same thing if God spoke to me and called me to Jerusalem. Of course, I would do all the right things. Well, God's calling you to do what he did right now. What you're called to do in your life is just as important as Nehemiah's calling to go rebuild the walls in Jerusalem. So we can't say that we would do it if we're not doing it. We're not doing it for a reason. We need to figure it out and we need to follow God. We need to say to ourselves, what would I do in this situation with Nehemiah if I had all the resources and money that I could possibly have? 
Maybe Nehemiah was already pretty well off and didn't, I, I, he must have been to be able to afford probably about $600 a day out of his own pocket to be able to pay for all this food. Each day was one ox, one six choice sheep, birds were prepared, all sorts of wine. And he had, a, uh, he had a, an ability to go into the governor's bank account, basically, and take the money out and buy all this every day for everybody. But he didn't do that. He took his own money and he did it. So that's a, a very difficult thing to do because money is a very powerful, alluring uh, pull, especially in our consumeristic culture. The pursuit of money, the worrying about money, the worrying about what am I going to do? How am I going to do it? All these things in and of themselves require us to trust God, but they're also very, very, uh, they're, they're, they're challenging in a, as it relates to sin. Because once we start to need that finances or once we see that carrot of what we could have, guess what? Our flesh takes over and then we, we start to dabble. He didn't use servants for profit to buy and profit from the land. I mean, I know, I don't know about you, but, you know, I, I remember as when Hurricane Sandy happened, everybody saying, oh, we got to go invest money down there now and rebuild and do all this stuff. And, um, you know, it's uh, one of the biggest temptations from an investing perspective is this cheap land. I mean, that is just probably one of the best investments you can make. And Nehemiah had it all right there. He could have purchased, he knows the Jews are coming back. He could have purchased his, all this property and leased it out, rented it out, taxed it out, whatever he wanted to do. He didn't do anything, it says. He didn't even buy the land. That's what would been of, that would have been so desirable for him. <clears throat> he didn't take a tax from the people. All the other governors did that, including Zerubbabel. And there was probably about three or four other ones in there. They rightly took the tax. I mean, is it, is it wrong? I mean, doesn't the Bible say don't muzzle the ox, right? And that's why I want to talk to you guys about getting me a new jet <laughs> to fly back from here to Millstone every day. It's hard, that 15-minute ride. You know, I'll be much more productive for God if I can just, you know, fly here in my jet plane. You know, that's the type of things that go through our mind when we say, when we have all this money, right? Oh, yeah, I mean, God would want me to. People will look and say, oh, glorify God for that for that jet. You know, so this is not what God would, this is not what Nehemiah did. He didn't put worldly pleasure first. Now here's why worldly pleasure is so difficult. There's nothing wrong in, I want to just again, in and of itself to, to be wealthy and to have money. But it's, the problem is, is that what, when we do with that is a lot of times when we get it, we end up becomes a focus for us and it starts to master us. You see, there's the rub when it comes to following God. God Jesus uh, or Paul says that all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. And the real, the real aspect of this is he says here in six, uh, 1 Corinthians 6.12, all things are, are or he says the word lawful, but not are all profitable. I like profitable better because we could relate to that, right? Is this going to profit me? No. Am I allowed to do it? Well, I guess if I want to, if my heart doesn't convict me, but is it going to profit me? But what ends up happening is, is when we give in to these worldly pleasures just a little bit, and you know yourself, you know what you're, you're susceptible to, you become mastered by it. He says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered 
by anything. Okay, we get a compulsivity sometimes towards worldly pleasures where we feel we, we can't stop thinking about it and we get compelled to do it. And that's when it's mastered over you. <clears throat> and, and Jesus, obviously, in Luke 8, 14, talking about the parable of the seed and talking about the one that fell on the thorns. This is these who have heard the word. Well, they know the word. And as they go their way, thinking about the word, I guess, as they're thinking about the word, the word starts to get choked with riches and pleasures of this life. Why? Because the, it's mastering them. And, and they're going to choke out the word of God that's pulling them away from that one thing that they're mastered, for, uh, mastered by. And I think the real battle, the, the, the real battle here, people, is the tiny, tiny details, the small little choices that we make. I like to use the example of two seemingly parallel lines. They can be slightly off. Take two parallel lines, and if I showed you both of them and one of them was off one millimeter, you probably wouldn't be able to tell from where you're sitting. But as that one millimeter is just off a little bit, you may continue those two lines and still not see much of a difference. But a mile down the road, they're worlds apart. They've grown, and it all started with that little tiny itty bitty compromise. And we could do this with money. Nehemiah didn't do it, but it's, we leverage, sometimes immorally, when it comes to money. We favor people, situations because of money. We steal time, which is like stealing money from employers. <clears throat> we, some, we also have to be very careful about the money that we're making our employers, right? I mean, I don't know where, where you work and what you do, but um, do, are you honoring God in the business that you're in? That's, you know, one of the things that it would be very hard for me to go out and, and let's say work for a company that sells cigarettes, Okay, because I would have a conviction about that because I know cigarettes are very bad for people and it would be really, it would be for me difficult for me to, to do that. And so, but I know too that I could justify it <laughs> and I could, I, could, I could say, oh, well, you know, this and that and I'm going to reach it. But God wants the heart. He's checking the heart, right? So we have to make sure that these little tiny compromises don't start to whoosh, go way, way off. Now, the other thing, too, here is he feared God. He feared the Lord. And he even said it here. He said, verse 15, I did not do these things. He says, I did not do so because of the fear of God. The fear of God. Now, what, again, is the fear of God? We hear about the fear of God all the time. And sometimes, you know, it's in use in all different contexts. You know, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of the Lord um, is the beginning of knowledge. <clears throat> and, and we also say, you know, things like, you know, you better fear of the Lord here. You know, like, don't be doing that. Don't you have fear of God? And that's sort of how Nehemiah was saying it here. But ultimately, when you see the word fear the Lord, if you're a, if you're a Christian and you're a believer, there shouldn't be a, you should fear God like you, you would fear a parent that let you know loves you infinitely and eternally and that gives everything for you? How would you fear that parent? 
Well, you would revere that parent. You'd have a deep respect for that parent. You would even venerate, okay? Um, Obviously, we wouldn't want to promote veneration from an idolatry perspective, but veneration meaning you're you're giving honor, you're giving uh, that, treating that person with respect and obedience. And there's also an aspect of it of having a little bit of a healthy fear. A little bit because you know what you're dealing with here. I like fearing the the Lord. When I think about it, I think standing in awe of the Lord. Standing in awe of the Lord and his goodness and who he is. And again, we said that God deserves this rightful place of first priority. He definitely deserves it, but it's not just because, oh, wow, he is God. You know, he died for our sins. He did all this stuff, so he deserves it. But it goes beyond that. God deserves it because God was first, number one. He created all things, number two. He created you, number three. And he owns you. He gives your heart the ability to beat, your brain to be able to process all the little synapses that are going on right now. God is holding you together. So why not? Why wouldn't we put him first in our life? Because we feel that we are, we, we feel that we should be in that position, or at least equal with God. Like the slice, eight slices of a pizza, right? Slice one, number one is my physical health. Slice number two is my family. And slice number three is God. No, God is the whole pie. Yes. He's the whole pie because he's the flower, he's the water, he's the goat, he's the cow, he's, every, he's everything that provides for that pizza. He's number one. And to have fear is to stand in awe of that. But it also has to do too with how we behave. Because if you're just walking in sin and you're not fearing the Lord and it's not bothering you, it's not pricking your conscience, then you're, you don't fear the Lord. You're not standing in awe. You're probably looking at Jesus as somebody that can, yep, I accepted him as my Lord and Savior and I'm forgiven and everything's going to be fine as long as I just keep believing that it doesn't matter how I live. And that's not what the Bible teaches at all. Fear of God is desiring God and fearing sin more than anything else in your life. You desire God and you fear sin. Notice fear sin. You should fear sin. We shouldn't go up to sin and be like, oh yeah, you got no, come on, man. You start pushing it and shoving it. No, we don't do that. We need to stay away from it. We need to cut our, turn our mind away from it. Not set anything wicked even before our own eyes, Job said. Why? Because if he does, or I believe it was Jeremiah, I, if he does, he knows that there's thou that chance of being mastered. John Wesley said, give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God. And I care not whether they be clergymen or laymen, they alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven on earth. Sin, fearing sin and desiring God. Psalm 101.3, here's the verse I was looking at. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. Jeremiah put his own, per- his own pleasure, his own time, and his own personal interests, not over over here to the side as second, but no, he put them away. 
He emptied them. He put his own desire for pleasure, his own desire for time, his own desire for resources, his own desires, his own desires. He put away. He, we could say in Christian language, he nailed them to the cross. His old life is nailed to the cross. And now then God now comes in and does his work. How do we desire God and fear sin more than anything else? Well, here's a few things that I like to look at. Is number one, understand who God is and understand who you are. See, sometimes we forget. We, we keep those things a little too equal. See, God is holy and righteous and just. And he is also love. That's what confuses a lot of people, right? That's why it says righteousness and truth. They, they kissed, they've kissed. Because righteousness and truth, how can they ever kiss? How can they ever become one? Because right, the righteousness where we fail, we don't want to go to truth. Righteousness and truth, justice and truth cannot be together typically in the, in the concept of sin, in the concept of a sinful world. But Jesus does that. We At the cross, we see the complete 100% righteousness of God. We see that meet up 100% with the truth of God. And at the same time, even though that that's sin and that God hates sin, we also see the love of God at the cross. And that's, only, that's really like the only place that that can happen. But God is a God of love and we are sinful human beings. We talked about this last week. The heart is desperately wicked above all things. We need to know that because unless you know what you're saved from, you really don't appreciate it that much. He who sins most will, will, will love the most, Jesus tells us in a, in, a, in a story with the two women who one, who one was a $5 sinner and the other was a $5 million sinner. Which one, they were both forgiven. Which one loves more? The $5 million sinner. I don't know about you, but I'm a $5 million sinner. Okay, I'm a $5 million sinner that sees where God saved me from. Thank you, Lord, that I could see that. And I still haven't seen it clear enough. I wanna see it more and I wanna see it more because the more I see it, the more I realize how much he loved me by choosing to save me. It wasn't my good works that, it wasn't like, oh, well, wait a second, look at that guy down there. Pat, he's a good candidate for salvation. Well, we gotta try to recruit him in, you know? Let's woo him in. Let's like, let's, let's do a little dance and get him over here. No, God said, look at that disgusting, wretched sinner who people in a million years are never gonna think that that guy can be turned around. And, and he, that's, I, don't, I don't know if that's why he did. The Bible says he did because he did. He, lo, uh, you know, he loves us because he loves us. <laughs> that's what it says in Deuteronomy. And that's the same with each of us. We need to see the depth of our sin and then we will fear it. And we need to see the, the greatness of God's love and then we will desire him. <clears throat> you have to understand like Nehemiah, his mission. He understood his mission. He understood his enemy. We have to do that. Your mission is like Nehemiah, build for the kingdom. Be made right by God so that you can go out and do the things and be used in the things that God wants to go make right, like this world. That's where he, wherever he's put you. And so what you really have to do is repent and obey 
And that's that sounds easy, but that's 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 it's not it's a difficult thing to do. It's a simple concept, but this is where trust comes. And the final point was that he was selfless. And I really could say this isn't even like a final point. This is sort of a this is what, what it's really all about. The selflessness of Nehemiah shows me that he was a guy that feared God and feared sin. The selflessness of him. And <clears throat> why do we have, we have to become selfish? Like we read today, do nothing from, uh, um, why must we become selfless? I'm sorry. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And Jesus said that, There's no greater love than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. So this is a, these are some of the things that Jesus talks about. If anyone, this is in, this is just, you know, one of many. And if you read through the gospels, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll see sayings like this all the time. If anyone, this is Luke 9, 23 to 25. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. If anyone, okay, that is, uh, uh, that, that is like completely unconditional. It's any person, anyone, they have to do this. They must come after him. Yes, but they have to deny themselves. So you can't come after Christ and still be not denying yourself. You can't be coming after Christ not carrying anything in your hand. Should be a cross. Okay? The cross should be there. He says, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Nehemiah could have said that, right? I'm going to save my life. I'm going to prepare for my family. I'm, I, hey, they did this in Egypt. You know, jo- I got to be like Joseph. You know, I got to store up. You know, I got to do all this stuff. He didn't do that. Nope. He didn't wish to save his life. But he says, whoever loses his life, Jesus says, for my sake, he is the one who will save it. So see this, there's this constant theme about following Christ, about not about you, about him, not about your plans, about his plans, not about your goals and desires, about your, and what does Jesus say? Here's this, let me sum it up for you. Selfless, die to your desires, die to yourself. And how do we do this? Well, Nehemiah was very others-centered. So we see in verse 18 and 19, he gave all these people every single day. This was probably about, in our time, about 600 bucks a day that he was spending out of his own pocket. He didn't demand the governor's food allowance. And he says, remember me, O God, for good, according to all that I have done for, not you, for this people. He was, he was others-centered, and we must also, this goes without saying, is that we have to walk in the spirit. And we've, we've heard these things. Walk in the spirit. By the spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, and then you will live. Living in reliance on God. But it's not just denying our flesh and power. It's not just, uh, and here, it's not just going to like these little proof text verses and saying, okay, I have to do all this. And then I'm going to be, you know, have God is going to be first if I just do all this. That, to me, I see fail a lot because people are bypassing the elephant in the room of selflessness. And, and again, we don't know much about Nehemiah other than these actions that, he's t- that he took. But I have to say that I believe that this man was emptied of himself. 
So it's not just denying the flesh with our own power and reading proof text. It's taking a step back and saying, am I 100% emptied out for Christ? Emptying ourselves like Christ did. And again, we know this scripture, but I, I don't think sometimes we grasp it right. Philippians 2, 5 to 8, have this attitude in yourself, which also is in Christ Jesus. I think this should be, instead of Genesis 1, 1, this should be there. Like just before you read this Bible, if you don't want to have to read all 66 books and just figure it out with one verse, here it is. Okay. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So what does it mean to say, I did not regard equality with God? He didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. See, Jesus was fully God, right? And he was fully man. What it means is when he was walking on earth, he didn't go around going, all right, now let me go in the, let's get, you know, Peter, get me all the messianic verses you can get me, okay? Uh, you know, John, uh, go pull out the scripture on there. I have to fulfill these verses. I have to go out and be the Messiah because that's what I came to do. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus was God, and instead, he did what we have to do, completely empty ourselves, depending that, on God to be the one to move us and to guide us and to show us when we need to heal that person and to show us when we need to say these words and to show us when it's time to actually get nailed to the cross and to show, that's what, that's what he didn't regard equality with God. He didn't go and say, I gotta live up to this expectation he knew who he was. He just said, I am going to lay the groundwork as the example here for sure. And I am going to die to myself. And that's what Jesus did. He emptied himself. And that's the key to selflessness is emptying yourself, losing your life. And it's about surrender. It's about surrender. It's about you using the brain in your cranium. You have a brain in there. It's the only medical term I know, cranium. <laughs> Using that brain of yours that God gave you and looking with your eyes at the scripture where God promises that if you turn to me with all of your heart and you seek me with all of your heart, you will find me. And when you give me your 100% all of your life, I will take it over and I will show you and lead the way. Why is that so hard for us to do? We're afraid we're not going to be able to do it. I'm not good enough. And, and God is not going to, you're not becoming, you know, lobotomized and your brain is going to be, now you're just, you're done, you're going to fall. No, you're going to become invigorated with the spirit of God and he's going to move you. And so <clears throat> Nehemiah, he didn't go after worldly pleasures. He feared God first and foremost by desiring God and fearing sin, and he was selfless by emptying himself, not regarding equality with God, Jesus, they say about Jesus, something to be grasped. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, walked around completely emptied, completely depending upon the Father. That's what we have to do, completely depending upon the Holy Spirit. And then we will be 
able to turn away the appetites of the world, the appetites of, of our flesh, then we'll be able to do that. And we will have victories in doing that, but there must be a, a moment in time where you go and do business with God. And then you get up and you go and do the right thing that you're supposed to be doing. And that's where God will meet you. So let's pray for that. Full surrender, Lord, in every way and in every situation and in every circumstance. I know that's what you desire. And Lord, I know that we are unable to do it without the power of your Holy Spirit. But Lord, I also know that our flesh tells us that, you know, that we can't do it. But Lord, please meet us right where we're at right now. And Lord, if if somebody's here saying, yes, this is what I want. I want to surrender. Will you give them? Meet them where they are right now, Lord. Give them that grace. Give them the ability to turn and take that step of faith and trust in you. We thank you, Lord, for your amazing sacrifice and example for us. That you, Lord, the God of the universe, came to die for us and to rise again to give us new life, to have forever communion with you. And we're ever so thankful for that. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's.